Hello and welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I'm Tom Hagee with HB Litigation Conferences. This is a collaboration. (laughs) We say that like I'm surprised. It's a collaboration between my company and Law Street Media and Fastcase. Law Street Media is a great source of free legal news out on the web. Take a look at them. And Fastcase is a, uh, you know, it's a premier uh, legal research company, among other things. And they've got Docket Alarm. I like Docket Alarm. Uh, another collaboration between the uh, these companies, including mine, and me in particular, is uh, is the Journal on Emerging Issues in Litigation. It's kind of a companion to, not kind of a companion, it's a companion. Let's be emphatic today. It's a companion between my company, it's a companion between my company, it's a companion to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. If you have any interest in publishing on that, we're obviously looking for great articles, and we like to promote the people who do uh, appear in that uh, in the journal, and of course in this podcast. So, if you have any uh, uh, any desire to participate, you've got something good to say on some emerging issue or developing or evolving issue in litigation or law. Write to me at editor at litigationconferences.com. So today we're going to talk about data security challenges facing. You know, I was going to say small firms, but it's large firms too. But let's just say let's just say small firms for the moment. Um, we don't want to leave anybody out. According to the American Bar Association, and you'll want to make sure you're seated for this. Law firms don't always have everything buttoned down when it comes to data security. Can you imagine the uh, ABA's 2020 Legal Technology Survey report was conducted by their. Legal Technology Resource Center reveals that um, a lot of certain a lot of security tools um, aren't being used by law firms. In fact, let's let's read a couple of them. Only forty three percent use file encryption. Only thirty nine percent use email encryption. <laughs> Only twenty six percent use whole or full disk encryption. And I don't know what that is exactly, but that sounds like something you should have. Oh, I know. I just play dumb <clears throat> very well. Other security tools uh, used by less than 50% of respondents, according to the ABA. Let's give that another plug. The ABA 2020 Legal Technology Survey Report. Fewer than half of the respondents, in some cases much fewer than half, uh, use two-factor authentication. Intrusion prevention. Intrusion detection remote device management, and wiping. Device recovery, web filtering, employee monitoring, and biometric logins. No biometric logins. Biometric logins. Uh, You know, that's like your face, your thumbprint. I don't think you have to give blood yet, but uh, that's the kind of stuff they look for for that. But yeah, less than half. Law firms have a lot of juicy stuff, as everybody knows. Certainly, listening to this, they you know you've got a lot of uh, intellectual property. You've got uh, you've got uh, what do you call it? Uh, personal identifiable inf- information. You've got deal information. So, uh, law firms are sweet targets. Um, plus, law firms have a lot of regulatory obligations and reporting obligations. You know, with HIPAA and other things, many other things. Plus, there's ethical obligations for law firms to protect client data. That's another podcast. So the last uh, decade has brought us 
many dozens of headlines about law firms being hacked or compromised for purposes of insider trading or uh, to uncover what uh, groups might think is fraud. Uh, there's some state-sponsored activity from our uh, our friends in Russia and China. There's been actual stealing of money from accounts, you know, once uh, passwords were obtained, intellectual property's been stolen, and then there's ransomware, which is which is all the rave these days. Or is it all the rage? It's one of those. Either way, it's ransomware, and just this month, and that would be July 2021, if I can get this podcast out the door. This headline comes from, I like this, the name of this, threatpost.com. Law firm to the Fortune 500 breached with ransomware. And it goes on to say, deep-pocketed clients and customers and suppliers could be in the attacker's net with potential PII exposure from an A-list clientele. A U.S. law firm to a dazzling array of huge companies told its star-studded clientele that an intruder may have groped their data. So they're pretty colorful over there at uh, threatpost.com. You know, and that's what I know, anyway. And that's about all I know. Fortunately for you, I have two gentlemen who know much more. Much, much more. I wrote that. I wrote it twice. First, let me introduce the uh, Andre Crail. He's CEO and founder of LIFARS. That's L-I-F-A-R-S. LIFARS is a New York-based incident response and digital forensics firm. He participates in high-profile engagements around the world. He uses a proprietary methodology to achieve the most rapid root cause analysis and remediation. That's what I always want to do for a living. He's a former lecturer at the FBI Training Academy. That is the Federal Bureau of Investigation Training Academy. And he was Chief Information Security Officer at IDT 911, a leading identity theft recovery and data breach management service. He's, uh, he's led forensic investigations in cybersecurity involving the U.S. government, including military cyber special ops. I like to say ops. He holds a Ph.D., so he's a doctor. He holds a Ph.D. in computer forensics from uh, the police academy in Bratislava, brought, excuse me, Bratislava, Slo- Slovakia, and an MS degree in mathematical physics uh, from Comenius University in Bratislava. These things are just rolling right off the tongue for me. Comenius University in Bratislava, and an engineering diploma from Technical University in Svolen, Slovakia. Uh, and to give us perspective, uh, the inside view of a law firm, who, uh, who, who, despite being, my being told several times, I said he was an attorney. He is not. Um, but like me, he spent a great deal of his life around them. So we feel like, you know, we kind of, we can hang. Gasper Marciurano. He's chief marketing officer at LifeFars. He's former director of information services for a big Connecticut law firm. He's also consulted a number of other law, law firms. So it's great to have Gasper on. Let's just jump right into it because um, no one needs to hear my bumbling. So here's my interview with Andre Creel and Gasper Marcherano with LifeFars. Hope you enjoy it. So Andre and Gasper, thank you very much for doing this today. My pleasure, Tom. Yep. Thank you for having us, Tom. You bet. So let's just jump right into the, the first question. Here's a here's a general one, probably more for me than anybody else. But can you describe what an ethical hacker is? And Andre, uh, maybe you can answer that one. Um, I would say around 20 years ago, there was a need to create ethical type of approach into testing of vulnerabilities and also testing the systems. 
and various certifications were introduced. So one of them was Ethical Certified Hacker. And the main purpose of that program was truly to create an experience for private and government enterprises where they would be attacked the same way as the threat actors, like really bad hackers actually would. So ethical hacker is someone who um, basically is um, attacking the companies and the government the same way as the bad actor would, but conducting more of a structured test where um, it's uh, really a professional service. He's getting paid for it. And then he is conducting same level of testing that the threat actor, really the bad person, would actually do to the enterprise or a government. Okay. But they're, they're trained in this. These aren't necessarily uh, hackers who were criminals at one time who became ethical, or is that is it? It's mainly they're trained how to 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 hack. Is that basically it? Some of them do have a background, Tom, uh, in some of the hacking. But I would say people, for example, that we met, we had one person who um, uh, was 17-year-old when he committed a crime of breaking into some of the online uh, portals that you know of. And he was uh, taking um, coupons for, let's say, like a $10 or $20 off. And he ag- aggregated close to $300,000 worth of coupons. Okay. And uh, I was 17 years old. But so it wasn't like a really highly sophisticated hack, mm-hmm. but some of them have conducted this type of activities. I would say most of the criminals who got prosecuted truly wasn't really something sophisticated. It was really more of a financial game and doing for a fun. So they are generally not even the best to actually conduct that level of testing. Mm-hmm. The people who are really good, are usually cyber military offensive forces that are trained to do this for a government. And those you hardly meet in your life, probably you haven't met many people from OSS, Office of Special Services at the CIA. People Mm -hmm. don't even know who they are because most of these individuals are basically classified for their life. Even when they die, they're never declassified. They work at such offensive missions. So those are probably the best and deadliest people uh, in the hacking itself. And they have a skill set that uh, is very superior. And they usually pick to those units because they can either write code that's really almost like a cyber weapon, or they can operate with that code and have level of understanding how to use that code in a way that other people probably wouldn't. Okay. Um, you can almost think of that, that, uh, look, each of us can have a sniper rifle, and um, that doesn't make us a sniper. <laughs> Right. It means also that, that the DNA of that person, that person is someone who really mastered the craftsmanship. And I've seen few people who can really shoot two miles target with less than a half a feet. Right. That's that's not easy. People think it's easy with the two bullets hit the target at two miles, um, less than a half a feet. I mean, that's that's a mastership. Right. So that's almost like in a DNA of that person. That person has a really good understanding of what he's doing. He's very talented, of course, in, in this he has very good, um, I would say it's almost like an inside vision inside of him right. that he can master this to perfection. Okay. Fascinating. All right. Fascinating life. And an interesting way to start your career when you're 17 years old. So um, so talking about, uh, we're talking about smaller firms. Uh, we can talk about bigger firms too, but small firms. And and Gasper, you've got experience uh, as a lawyer, as a IT person with law firms. Can you, can you describe what are security challenges that 
security challenges that small firms might have that are might be different than anyone else's? Sure. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm not an attorney, but I, I uh, played one on TV. Now, I, I'm not an attorney, but I have a unique experience uh, before jo- joining LifeRs uh, to uh, working as the director of IT for a law firm, uh, a fairly large size one, and also did a lot of consulting for law firms uh, around the country. And one of the biggest challenges, I think, is that uh, a lot of the smaller and even mid-sized firms just believe that they're too small uh, to attract any interest from a hacker from someone trying to break into your system. So they had this belief that, well, no one's gonna come and pick on us because we're just not big enough in size in order to make it worth their while. And, and the reality is, uh, from my experience uh, at a firm that was uh, compromised, um, it, can, it can happen to any size firm. So I, I think that um, these firms have to really invest the, uh, the dollars necessary to protect themselves at a minimum level. And a, a lot of them, surprisingly, uh, even to this day, do, do not do that. And I think maybe it's just a reliance on insurance, cyber insurance and things of that nature that kind of gives them this, this feeling of, well, no one's going to bug us. And if they do, we're insured anyway. But um, what they don't think about is, sure, you might have a, a insurance to pay for the ransom, but what happens to your reputation? What happens to your clients uh, when their data is stolen? Um, it's not going to be good for the long-term uh, reputation of the firm, and you you'll lo- lose business. So I think small firms, it's it's a challenge because you know they they don't have the budgets to invest necessarily in the infrastructure, in the employees, and the software needed uh, to protect them. So they 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 kind of cut corners in many times. Okay, gotcha. And, and sorry, sorry for, for uh, retroactively promoting you to an attorney. <laughs> You're not an attorney, but no you worked at firms, so I appreciate that. So thank thanks for that. Um, and so the firms, large and small, obviously a lot of them have corporate clients, but um, there's a range of uh, regulatory obligations among these corporate clients. So, so Andre, can you talk a little bit about the client's regulatory obligations? What some of those are? Well, Gaspar has said it's a very, um, um, I would say, prevalent to in a business where a lot of people don't believe they're going to get hacked because, well, we are too small or we don't have any data. But the reality is that. Everyone has something. So, for example, even a small firm has an employee data. And what the threat actors and uh, been doing recently is playing a card what we call a third-party liability. Third-party liability, Tom, is that you have a data of a partner. So you have a data of third parties that you can't really declassify or you can't really publish. And that's a data they usually exfiltrate from the network. And even a small firm has a list of partners they work with. They have an ecosystem of third-party providers they work with. And a third-party liability right now basically creates this um, uh, constraint for, for, for the companies. So if you look from a regulatory point of view, third-party liability is one of the big ones that it's being played. Now, the data can be anything. The data under compliance can be, let's say, credit card data, uh, employee data, partners' data related to, let's say, ACH transfers or um, financial transactions. Can be also contracts that not cannot be disclosed in some nature of, like, let's say, like a law firms. They have a lot of clients, a lot of contracts that I'm sure many of those would not want to be disclosed, or they would not want to be named, or the stories would not want to be published. So um, the data in compliance around data is, I would say you have a 
You have a data that on a federal level are protected. You have something on a state level. And then mm-hmm. you have a business confidential or highly sensitive data that every, every business has, regardless of their size. And I also like what Gaspar said. Look, it's from our point of view, life is a breach. Everyone's going to get something. You will have a mild cyber call or really bad cyber cancer. And none of us, like the same way you cannot predict your health life. And you just wish you're never going to get any crazy sickness. Uh, but in reality, each of us at some point of a time will see a doctor. Mm-hmm. And there's no difference right now that at some point of a time, a human being connected to the internet will have to see a cyber specialist, a cyber doctor. Gotcha. It's just, gotcha. It's just the nature where we are at the moment. And right. if it's going to be exposed to, to his data, his personal data, third-party data, um, it's just going to happen. And, and regulations around the data basically trying to define what is the harm that that person is actually being touched, right? So it's a cyber call, it's not something that's a little mild, but it's like this really bad cyber cancer when an individual is exposed. Let's say many of us, for example, got the letters where a credit monitoring is at force and some other protective measures are brought into place, but they are also just here for a very short period of the time. So yeah. regulations are, are great uh, uh, around the data and compliance, but the same like in physical world, they are good at a point of a time and for the period of time. I, th- I think one of the areas which is overlooked, uh, and, I, and I'm going to use this as an example, again, from experience, is a, a PI firm, right? So personal injury, I'll say, well, what do they care? We have PI stuff. But the HIPAA, the amount of medical data that they have on the people that get into car accidents, histories of their medical histories are there, uh, and, and social security numbers, so to speak. So you know, to be HIPAA compliant is super important, and they have to make sure that they safeguard that information uh, online. And that's just a, you know, that could be any size PI firm is going to have that liability, uh, you know, open to them if they don't, if they're not careful. So Andre, anything in particular about the compliance that law firms have to be aware of and keep up with? Look, every firm, including law firm has an employee data. So probably they hold, hold PII, like a social security number. So people are getting paid, just the reality. So employee records, Every firm, regardless if it's not even a law firm, uh, has a PI. What Gaspar pointed out, PHI is also included, meaning the third party providing health insurance, providing that to the employees um, is included. Now, right. in addition, law firm might have a third party PII, meaning they're working on a case and they need a social security number because for whatever reason, there's been credit card check ran, uh, individuals due diligence have been done on some third party so they actually they might have a third-party data, PII, little like a social security numbers and um, addresses, phone numbers, emails, uh, name, like everything combined in it that would qualify as a PII for, for third parties. They would also have PHI, like Gaspar pointed out, that let's say the law firm is involved in some whatever case that would be, and PHI somehow was relevant to that case. Like let's say disclosing a medical status or uh, just the employee litigation about disclosing a medical status to other employees, right? So that's so it's these are actually very simple examples. I mean, you don't have to be highly sophisticated. A lot of these cases are very normal. Another one is look at what we call the property and casualty insurance. So that actually might have, for example, building with all tenants, payments, right? Like a case that is a property casualty and insurance carriers and 
And basically, a lot of different parties, there's in a property casualty claim where, um, let's say, the building had 40, 50 tenants, a lot of data around these tenants, how they paid financial systems, transactions, maybe key owners, PII, like who those people are, their credit checks. Uh, another one, very simple, PII, the law firm can have is something what we call a director's and officer's liability, right? So a lot of law firms work with executives. And um, we live in an era, Tom, where being sued as an executive is normal, right? Like people will just raise the claim against executive. And what happened in a, with a carriers and legal world is settlements are set up somewhere between twenty dollars to $50,000 when there's something what we call the hammer clause and no harm, right? So the person who is filing the claim, he knows that the claims is completely false, but he also knows that lawyer and him can get, let's say, $20,000 out of, out of that firm, right? And that's, that's something important to know, that these claims type of exist. And uh, so directors and officers, and, uh, and these are highly sensitive cases. These people are going to say things that are not even true, right? So disclosing some, some of these negotiations uh, uh, would, would be probably very damaging to either of a party. Another one, when you asked, uh, was, for example, errors and omissions. So legal firms get also involved with uh, something what we call error and omissions. So imagine there is a construct that someone actually failed to perform some kind of duty, right? And of course, it's described in a way where that person is probably not very happy about, right, the way it's been described. Um, and there's also always other side of the view why that whatever failed, right? We, the, 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 there are always two sides of the coin here. So that's just an example of what law firm has. Law firms have very highly sensitive data on the clients. And there, there is a third party directly from the data embedded in. On top of that, of course, what you mentioned, the ethical obligations of the law firms being privileged, confidential, work under a doctrine of attorney work product. I want to point it out that um, even with all of that, everything can go wrong. So for example, there is a quite famous case between the Capital One and a, a company called Mandy and, and a law firm called Debovois. And they're all great firms, by the way, uh, Debovois and, and Mandy are great firm. Uh, but their report was used in a normal conduct of a business, I believe with one of the accounting firm, you know, like Erzen Young and PwC, and therefore become uh, almost like a declassified, right? So there are also these precedences where something as simple as a work product, that for example, Tom, only you could see, can become a declassified, right? So uh, there are often, I would say, these moves where some of the working products, attorney work products, are declassified, a law firm that actually has uh, harmful um, consequences. Right. In, 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 in a lot of the law firms, some of the reasons they're such sweet targets for hackers is they're also dealing with intellectual property of their clients and confidential business deal information, right? Oh, that, that's, you, you just nail it. Like IP is everything, intellectual property, like for example, patent lawyers, people who patent intellectual property or work in intellectual property litigation. That's, um, that's very heavy. Okay. Uh, there are firms that are really specializing um, uh, in it. Okay, and and so the um, the American Bar Association they released uh, their 2020 results of their survey on legal technology, and what what does that tell us about the security measures being taken by law firms, Andre? Well, I would say many of the larger firms that take it very seriously. 
they understand the clients are really precious to them. I would say the mid-sized law firm, they have harder time to adjust some good security practices at a firm. Um, it's just, it, it's, law firm is a really very different ecosystem because usually you have partners in a business and they not, not that they operate in a silo, but they don't necessarily operate in a complete unity, meaning that, that it's not like completely glued together. It's almost like you take a real estate firm when you have a multiple teams, right? And it operates under one umbrella. And that's, I, I guess that's create quite challenging environments for law firms to add everything together. Uh, the advantage right now, I would say, for the smaller law firms is that they can use third-party providers to host the data. But I would say from top firms who are target of nation states, right, different threat actors, not easy to sustain, uh, to mid-sized firms that are target to normal cyber criminals. Um, law firms do have a time right now to catch up, literally behind. Uh, mm-hmm. Financial industry is probably the first one, but the law firm do do have uh, a little bit more work to do right. to uh, basically get get to that level. Okay. Yeah, I, I can give you some examples. Go ahead. Um, from when I read the report from the uh, American Bar Association, and I looked at the survey results, I really wasn't that surprised. Um, you know, it, it really across the board, you were looking anywhere from fifty percent to you know twenty percent range of, of, of firms taking advantage of of the different. Uh, the different tools that are available to them to actually protect their data. When I was uh, consulting uh, full time and I was working with a lot of these firms, I, I, Andre touched on it a little bit. Um, I would recommend they would they would try to put as much as possible in the cloud instead of keeping uh, you know uh, in house servers. For instance, moving to Office three sixty five, um, taking advantage of uh, file file systems like uh, FileBind or what are the ones that are out there that are cloud based because. Um, if they're using these project management software, these are uh, uh, case management software systems internally, uh, they were really um, having to depend on their small, tiny uh, IT staffs to manage and protect this, this data that's just, um, it's just scary if it gets out there. So looking at what was provided, I know the firms I worked at, the firms I consulted for, very, very few would do things like two-factor to protect their passwords. Um, they really didn't encrypt any files uh, for the most part. Uh, they just they 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 were just really like They were lackadaisical about it, and I don't I never quite understood because to me, um, losing your law license or or ruining the reputation of of your company that you worked so hard to build really wasn't worth it for what the extra few thousand dollars you'd have to spend a year to protect this data. Is it better to spend one hundred, two hundred thousand dollars a year, three hundred thousand dollars, five hundred thousand dollars a year, or be held ransom for $50 million. Um, and it's, you know, just like any insurance, right? You don't need it until you need it. And I think that not having these tools in place and then in hindsight, looking back and wondering why we didn't encrypt our files or why we didn't use two-factor or why, it, it, it's too late. Right. Uh, by then you've ruined the company and you've ruined the reputation and you've, you know, maybe hurt the livelihood of a lot of your employees. Right, yeah. That is surprising to me that, like you said, fewer than half are using some of these basic tools like file encryption, uh, two-factor authentication, things like that. Um, yeah, you see, yeah, as you said, given the potential risk and uh, not only to, not monetarily into their clients, but also to their reputations. So, yeah, so that's surprising to me. Um, well, I guess, uh, you know, we've kind of answered... We answered this, um, you know, what, what makes small firms such easy targets or low hanging fruit. And, 
And so as, as you were saying, you know, they don't always have the resources of the bigger, uh, the bigger companies. Is there anything else you want to say about small firms? Yeah, I yeah. do. One other thing, uh, I'm just going to contradict myself a little bit. Okay. So outsourcing is great, but I'll give you a great example where they were affected really recently. When the Kaseya um, uh, breach happened uh, uh, over that 4th of July weekend, just recently, uh, we were one of the first, uh, LifeWars was one of the first to get out there and start spreading the word what was going on. That affected these MSPs. These MSPs manage a lot of law firms. And I had former clients of mine that I used to consult with calling me because they got emails from their MSP saying, oh, by the way, uh, there may be a problem. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, just be careful what we're doing. And, you know, they, they were warning them. And I saw one of the emails and read it. And it didn't seem like anyone was that, um, they, I guess they didn't want to alarm anyone. So they kind of were really low key in what was going on. And especially early, early on, uh, our company were, was acting on it and we knew what was happening. And I had a much higher level of alert saying, this is this could be a big, big problem. And uh, so there's a firm that maybe did the right thing. They said, well, we don't have the staff. Let's outsource it, get another company to manage this all for us. And they still uh, almost got, uh, you know, became a victim of ransomware. So, so I, you know, they, I guess the short answer is no matter what size of your firm, to be 100 uh, percent protected is nearly impossible. Right. All you can do is take proactive steps and trying to do your best to, uh, to protect your company. I don't know if you have anything to add on there. Well, the spiral laid out is, is a very classic that the mid-sized firm and believes what they have as special law firms. I tell you, the ecosystem really changed and we live in the era of cyber warfare, your life or not. And not that just because that's my background and I work with some of the offensive units. Uh, just even individuals of Eurasia, one of the cases 10 years ago was this 17 years old individual out of mm-hmm. Vietnam. And again, not, nothing against Vietnam, uh, but there was, for example, a lot of hate between what happened in a war and the countries and how his uh, ancestors were uh, involved in some of the turbulence that happened at the time and sure. attraction between the Russia and America. Um, and when we were tracing him, he already committed crimes on and around seven to eight million dollars. And he was 17 years old, uh, a lot of extortion, uh, primarily extortion type of a business. Um, and I remember him specifically because he pointed to Da Vinci and he said that Da Vinci was a hacker and he's a hacker too. Like he, he, he basically portrayed himself as a hacker with a higher purpose and a talent and genuity that would be. And I tell you, we were a unit of eight people at the time to tracking him. We were able to come too close to him, but he disappeared, meaning he, he vanished. Mm-hmm. He was able to take maybe different identity or whatever and manage in Vietnam and was never actually caught or never, never prosecuted for the crimes he committed. Uh, in one of the chats, he said that each of us are only good as a code. And uh, he really meant like Da Vinci code, right? But truly your DNA code, like your DNA code defines you. But he also mentioned that the code of the systems defines it. And his point was that what he's exploiting is an immature DNA belief of people who run these businesses. That was his way to take a look at it, that their downfall is their own DNA, how they believe, like, and that's not patchable, right? So no one can patch your DNA when your DNA dictates your brain that there's some belief about, about something. And um, 
I'm a type of scientific person, so I usually try to make the determination of my facts either based on experience of others who got burned or data analytics. I try to avoid to take anything by what we call by virtue of the guts or make the decision. Uh, and it's just because working at a special ops, often people who took those decisions basically died. It had a dramatic consequences in missions. If, if, it, if it wasn't calculated move, more of a heroic move, it was always a lot of danger in it. Mm-hmm. Right. And what, what is surprising to me is that I would say in this mid-sized type of world, there's a lot of this heroic movement. There's lack of understanding of experience of the others, what the problems are, or, or like, like, for example, this report from uh, American Bio Association, like a data analytics, the collection. And people do not, because of their DNA, they're still not believing. They're right. still not believing that would, would be our target if something would happen to them. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. His example is very classic. His message is very simple. People like me who have 17 years old and are actually minors would hardly be even extradited to the United States in the first place. Um, and if I make $5,000 a month, $6,000 a month, it's probably what my parents would make it for a year. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if I'm going to go and extort these businesses in the U.S., which there is still a lot of love and hate between what happened and how it happened here, it doesn't really matter. And no one's going to look at me in a wrong way, right? They're not going to look at me as a criminal where I am because the ecosystem has its own zeitgeist right. okay. perpetrated through the society. Interesting. And if you look at, if you look at the society with the zeitgeist that, Believe that Americans created. You find in other countries where mid-sized level individuals will just come in and extort or conduct the cyber actions against a mid-sized firm just because they know they will never get prosecuted and will never hit the federal authorities. The federal authorities are very busy with all kinds of different cases. Okay. Well, um, I don't mean to cut you short, but we've got just a couple minutes left. Um, I guess what I'm looking for now for firms is like, what's the most efficient way for them to shore up their data security? Andre, what would you say about that in just a couple of minutes, please? I would say they should really start thinking about their cyber posture, we call it cyber maturity, the same way they're thinking about the health. Like once or twice a year, they go for like an annual checkup and they go to our doctors. They find these cyber doctors or cyber therapists, whatever they need, right? If they need a therapy before they need a doctor, just to talk to them why it's important, find a cyber therapist. And I, I always like to feel I do like a cyber therapy at a board level and a CEO level, just give them some level of understanding what the problems could be or how, how would it work. Um, but that's where it really starts. Start finding two, three good cyber doctors that you believe you can talk to and trust, and they tell you reality, how good or bad and ugly, whatever they had on the network. Okay. And from there... They can make a decision. Okay, so what's my priority? I don't have a two, like I don't have a two-factor. I don't protect the data. My employee data is all, all in here. I hardly use a third parties, right? Like I think everything is in the house because I try to save money, mm-hmm. right? And they make these decisions. Look, sure, they cannot spend all the money on security, right. but having good security truly is the same way as you're preparing to climb the Everest. It's not going to happen in a day. It's right. going to be two, right. three years of mission. And you know what? At the middle of a mission, decided that Everest is not where you need to be, right? right. That a beautiful Mount Washington in New Hampshire is much better and got really good views too. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Good so, views. 
Yeah. So, so for these firms, it's basically pick really targets that you can accomplish in a year. Don't think that you're going to conquer Mount Washington at the end of it, at mm-hmm. the end of the year, because it will just create a lot of projects that are incomplete and they are failing, right? Gotcha. So, pick, yeah. so first, first is pick really cyber specialists that you think you can talk to. And second one, set the milestones every month, what you can really accomplish uh, by uh, end of the year. Gotcha. 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 Reasonable goals. Uh, Gasper, anything, anything final from you on that? I mean, you talked about things like moving to the cloud, anything else you wanted to comment about uh, getting, uh, getting your security shored up at a small firm? I think it is investing in good personnel. You don't need an army of uh, tech people, but having, having the right uh, staff uh, to address these problems, um, even if they don't know everything, what you want to know is who they need to contact in order to, to get the job done. So Sure. If they're able to manage uh, third-party vendors in a very organized and efficient way, um, it's going to be like you have an army of employees on your side if you have the right person kind of orchestrating it all. I just want to expand what the Gasper said, um, mm-hmm. because I think it's very important. When everything fails, do have a contact called Cyber 911, right? And for example, our line at Alive that's exactly what we do. We call, when people call, it means that everything what they've done on the cyber 911 line failed. Gotcha. And they're in the trouble. So imagine like, if you think you're in trouble, who is that person you're gonna call? The mm-hmm. same way you, you know you call 911, if, if that company has no other beliefs, no other way to talk to other people because they don't think that any cyber doctor is gonna help them, at least save one number. Put cyber 911 dash, when everything fails, this is the number I'm gonna call, and these people are going to come in here and help me. Excellent. Good good practical advice from both of you. Gentlemen, thank you both very much for speaking with me today. Tom, thank you for having us. Tom, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And there you have it. Another episode of the Emerging Litigation Podcast. And you've been listening to Andre Creel and Gaspar Marcherano of LifeRs. I appreciate uh, their work on this and contributing some pretty practical and valuable insights. Uh, personally, I enjoyed hearing about the 17-year-old uh, hacker who seemed to make a living out of it. Uh, some kids cut lawns. So once again, this has been a production of my company, HP Litigation Conferences and Fast Case and Law Street Media. If you have any comments or suggestions or are interested in participating in this podcast or in the journal on emerging issues in litigation, please write to me at editor at litigationconferences.com. This is Tom Hagee, your dubious host. I hope you enjoyed it.